From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. This weekend, the town of Eatonton, Georgia, honors one of its own, prolific poet and Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist and activist Alice Walker. The Georgia Writers Museum will celebrate Walker's 75th birthday with a now-sold-out day of festivities, including tributes by Georgia writers Pearl Clegg and Tayari Jones, and a screening of the PBS American Masters documentary, Alice Walker, Beauty and Truth. People really had a problem with my disinterest and submission. And they had a problem with my intellect. And they had a problem with my choice of lovers. And they had a problem with my choice of everything. So, you know, choose one, choose all. They just had a problem. That is Walker herself from the film. Another highlight, a conversation with author and UGA professor Valerie Boyd, curator and editor of a forthcoming collection of Walker's journals. And she joins me in the studio to talk a little bit about her life and legacy. Valerie, great to have you here. Great to be here, Virginia. Thank you. So Alice Walker, born the youngest of eight children to sharecropping parents, 1944. It was an accident that, by her account, really led her to reading and writing. What happened? When she was a child, her brother accidentally shot her in the eye with a BB gun. It affected her vision, of course, and it also affected her sense of herself, her self-esteem, that sort of thing, and it turned her inward, perhaps more than she might have been already. She was already an inward, you know, inward-focused, introspective child, but that really turned her inward and turned her to books and to the life of the imagination. Man, that imagination just flourished. She became, of course, the first African-American woman to win the Pulitzer Prize for a 1982 novel, The Color Purple, set in a small Georgia town. What does she say in her journals about memories of her hometown? It feels like a very complex relationship. Yes, it is a very complex relationship. You know, she grew up, as you pointed out, she was born in 1944. So she grew up in segregated Georgia. And when she left at age 17 to attend Spelman College um, with a sewing machine that her mother had given her and a typewriter and a little bit of money, she might have felt like she was escaping something and wondered if she would ever come back. Mm. And so she has had a complicated relationship with Georgia and especially Eatonton. Um, She went to Spelman, as you know, but didn't her she radical left, right? sensibilities made her decide to leave Spelman early. Well, this is something that comes up over and over again. She did meet, I believe, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. when she was at Spelman. She became an activist, worked in Mississippi on registering voters in the 1960s. And later, she continued that throughout her career, but later in her life, was arrested in 2004 for protesting the Iraq War. Did that kind of political activism ever affect how she was published, how she was treated by publishers, or even her fans? Uh, It certainly impacted her fans, and her political outspokenness has caused her some, um, you know, some people who disagree with some of her choices, as she mentioned in the clip. She was not not willing to submit. (laughs) Right, right. But uh, in terms of her, her readers, I mean, I think her readers appreciate the fact that She is an activist who, you know, tries to make change in the world. She's trying to fight for social justice for anyone who's oppressed. And that brings us back to Georgia and her growing up in segregated Georgia, where she understood oppression and wanted to, you know, take that boot off her own neck and 
make herself and everyone else free. That's the root of her activism. Well, of course, standing up to oppression is part of the theme of The Color Purple. Absolutely. Uh, the novel adapted into a film directed by Steven Spielberg, starring Whoopi Goldberg, Oprah, Danny Glover, and adapted for Broadway. Uh, that was a show in 2005. It's been running ever since. Here's a clip from the 1985 film. Everything you've done to me, already done to you. I'm poor, black. I may even be ugly, but dear God, I'm here. I'm here. This is from a climax from the film, and Celie just, you know, she's determined to no longer uh, take the abuse from her uh, her husband. Film racked up eleven Academy Award nominations. How did that fame generating from the book? How did that kind of acclaim and those kind of expectations affect her? The acclaim was great in terms of, you know, making, giving her the financial freedom that she could afford to buy 40 acres of her own. And she chose to buy those in California rather than Georgia, but has now decided to, she has a more, um, her, her relationship with Georgia is expanding and she is more embracing of Georgia now and is spending more time here and in Eatonton itself. But the acclaim from the color purple was good for her. But there was also controversy with The Color Purple in terms of um, people thinking that it was denigrating black men and that sort of thing. So that was painful for her. But I feel like it was just uh, a message that we weren't ready for yet. Now here we are in this Me Too moment. So uh, a film like The Color Purple feels, um, you know, like prescient in terms of its uh, ability to predict the issues that we would still be talking about today. My guest is writer and UGA professor Valerie Boyd. We're talking about the legacy of the legendary author and activist Alice Walker. Her hometown, Eatonton, Georgia, is going to be celebrating her 75th birthday this weekend. Valerie's a part of that celebration. Well, I'd love to get into that a little bit, the, the kind of sense of controversy, because you know, her books are often taught in women's studies classes, for example, black studies classes, and, and she's characterized often as a feminist. She uses the term womanist to describe herself and her work. What is that distinction, feminist and womanist? She says um, uh, a womanist is really, that's a term that she uh, developed in the 70s, and she wrote about it for the first time in an essay in an in, our search, in Search of Our Mother's Gardens. And she talks about womanist as um, kind of a black feminism. There's a saying in uh, old, old school black culture, if somebody's, uh, a child is acting grown. If it's a boy, you might say you're acting mannish. If it's a girl, you might say you're acting womanish. So womanist comes from that term, which is someone, it's basically a free black, free thinking black woman. This is something that so many women of color in the feminist movement, the early feminist movement, let's say second wave feminism, felt as if they were left behind. Yeah, I mean, they felt not fully embraced by the mainstream feminist movement. So the term womanism gave people a place to enter. Yeah. It gave uh, it was an embrace to women of color to say this is. Uh, where you stand in this movement. This is not the only controversy she's come upon. More, much more recently on a BBC radio show in an interview with the New York Times, Walker praised a book, And the Truth Will Set You Free, and this author, British conspiracy theorist, I think it's safe to say, David Icke, also regarded as an anti-Semite by many. 
Walker denied that. And and it wasn't just the right-leaning critics who uh, brought this up, brought up the anti-Semitic views on her books and her blogs. So what do you, as a scholar of her work, see there? Well, as someone who has read every journal entry that she's written uh, since she was 18 years old, I would say she is most definitely not anti-Semitic. I think that what she did with David Icke's book is that that was part of what she was reading. Mm. Um, the New York Times story was, what are you reading? And she, you know, rather than editing what was actually on her reading list, she was honest and said, this is one of the books I'm reading, along with a long list of other books. But people focused on that because of, you know, the view of David Icke as a conspiracy theorist. Alice's response was, I'm, I'm a woman. I'm a grown woman. I can read whatever I want, and you should be able to read whatever you want to. Mm. We cannot let people make us ashamed of what's on our nightstands. And Alice is deeply, deeply curious. So she reads everything. And I think people who automatically associated her with those views because she's reading about them and open to thinking about things that might be uncomfortable um, I think I think that was short-sighted for people to just, you know, put that kind of label on her. You are somebody who gets this vision of Alice Walker's writing to herself, right? She's not writing to a public. She's writing in her journals. What do, what do we not see? Who is she when no one's watching? <laughs> well, you will see when the book comes out, Gathering Blossoms Under Fire, it's going to be published in fall 2020, and it will be a selection of her actual journal entries. So, first of all, who lets you read their journals and who wants to put out a book that allows people that kind of access to her inner life? Alice Walker does. I mean, to me, that's why she's the freest person I know. And so we'll get a a glimpse of that. But what you'll see in the journals is a woman becoming herself. You'll see her from age 18 to 75 figuring out who she is and going through all the things that we as human beings go through, and especially we as women. So any milestone in a woman's life, first time falling in love, first kiss, um, having a child, losing your mother, um, marrying, divorcing, all those milestones are in the journals, not as milestones, but as personal moments of struggle and triumph. How do I get through this? What you see in her journals is her day-to-day almost thinking on this issue or that issue, changing her mind about this or that, figuring out this or that. And this or that could be what to cook for dinner. It could be how to make the year that she got divorced, how to make $10,000 for that year to support herself and her daughter as a single mother. You actually see in the journals her numbers, her math, figuring it all out. Um, you know, because at that point, she was not a known name. She was a, a single mom trying to figure out, can I really do this? And so I feel that the journals will humanize her um, for those people who are critics, but also for those people who are fans, but who put her on a pedestal and don't really understand that she's gone through the same struggles as everyone else. Was anything off limits in the journals? Um, no. She has been extraordinarily um, just trusting of me. She says, you know, have at it, do what you want. And, of course, I'm giving her final say. I'm like, if this feels too personal, you know, we don't have to include this. And she's, she's saying, I want it all in there. I want people to see the messy beauty of life. And that's what comes through in the journals. Yeah. 
She's also, a lot of people know her novels or her novel. Let's be more accurate about that. But you know, she's also written criticism, essays, poems. I'm a big fan of her poetry books. Um, Good night, Willie Lee. I'll see you in the morning. It's just a fantastic one. Right. And her most recent book was a book of poetry called Taking the Arrow Out of the Heart. Which is written after the 2016 election, something yes. that she uh, was deeply affected by and commenting on that. But if you look at her entire legacy, what makes her so distinctive as as a writer and, and as uh, of American literature and Southern literature? I think what makes her distinctive is that she is a black Southern woman uh, writing about global issues. She's writing about the issues of the day, whatever that day is, whether that's her writing about marching with Dr. King or about King's assassination or about, you know, the death of John Lennon in the journals or about, you know, the, the Trump election, whatever. She's writing about the issues of the day, but from a black Southern woman's perspective. All of those issues come up. I mean, The Color Purple is an incredibly timeless novel. Like, it's still important. It's, it takes on new importance when we think of where we are now with the Me Too movement, you know, decades after it was published. Happy birthday, Alice Walker. Yes, happy birthday, Alice Walker. And thank you so much for being with us, Valerie. Thank you. My pleasure. We're going to leave you with more from The Color Purple. This is Tony-winning actress Cynthia Erivo performing I'm Here on Broadway as we say goodbye to writer and UGA professor Valerie Boyd, curator and editor of a forthcoming collection of Walker's journals. Valerie, along with the famous playwright Pearl Clegg and author Tayari Jones, will honor Walker this weekend for her 75th birthday in Eatonton. The event is unfortunately sold out. Up next, Freaknik, Menace to Society or Triumph of Expression, a new podcast unpacks the now-banned spring break party that took over Atlanta. I'm Virginia Prescott. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Depending on who's talking, Freaknik was a notorious public safety hazard or an annual love fest that solidified Atlanta's status as America's black mecca. You've been to Daytona. You've been to Fort Lauderdale. You've been to Panama City. You've been to Cancun. You've been to Montego Bay. But when you take away the sand, when you take away the water, and you put all those people on the blacktop in the black mecca, you get the black college spring break. Welcome to Atlanta, Hot 97.5, the station where hip-hop lives. It's Freak Nick! What started in the 80s as a spring break event for historically black colleges and universities became a social phenomenon by the early 90s, with people People from across the country flooding to Atlanta, widespread partying, gridlock traffic, and pop-up music shows overtaking the city for a weekend each year. In 2010, former Mayor Kasim Reed declared there would not be a freaknik takeover of Atlanta under his watch, effectively banning the event. Documentary filmmaker Chris Frierson is creator and host of Freaknik, a discourse on a paradise lost. The podcast explores the rise and fall of Freaknik. Welcome, Chris. Hey, how's it going? Um, just fine. What a podcast you've done. It's really something. And at the time of the original Freak Nick, you were just a kid living in suburban Michigan. How'd you come to hear about it? Naturally, as, as a lot of um, black kids, we have roots in the South. And um, my aunt and uncle who grew up, um, my aunt grew up in Detroit and then ended up moving back to Atlanta um, and raising a family there. So I had cousins down there that I would visit every summer. And it was always the summer, you know, obviously Freaknik was 
pre-summer. So when I would get down there, it was post-Freaknik every year, and they would sort of regale stories and tales of this wild thing that I had no sort of semblance of what it possibly was or could be. Well, some of my younger colleagues didn't know the term Freaknik, and it may be new to some listeners. You tried to pin down its origins, rolling back to 1982. Spoke with a woman named Sharon Toomer, who co-created one of the first Freaknik events. She talked about what it meant to African-American students, some of whom spent most of the year at predominantly white schools. This was their moment of the entire year to be around their own people and just have fun, right? And enjoy the same music, the same kind of, you know, cultural activity, the all of that. And that is, I think, a legacy we should be proud of in helping to, to create that venue. What were the first Freaknik events in Atlanta like? I mean, from, from my understanding and the people that we've spoken to, it really was a simple picnic. And it was around spring break. And, you know, one of the interesting things is you can't really ever put put a pin on exactly what it was like because everybody has their own sort of different truth as to when exactly it started or what it was like. You'll, you'll have people in the pod saying like, oh, I was there at the first one in 85 or no, I was 82 and it was started by these people and this happened, this happened. And to me, that's one of like the most interesting things about it um, is that, you know, who's to say, I mean, everyone has their own truth. So no one's really lying. The first Freaknik is the first Freaknik for, you know, the, the person who experienced it. There's there's this air of mystery about the celebration, which I think is something that makes it really special. Um, but from to answer your question, from what I understand, it was a simple barbecue. And people have told me many different parks in Atlanta where that barbecue existed. But it just from my understanding and from... The research that we've done, it's just, it started small and just, you know, as things do, just blew up and blew up and blew up. Moved around town, um, different parks and kind of, you know, reached its, you know, zenith as we know in 93, 94. Right. So, so it was, you're speaking to like the organic nature of it, how it got pieced together and brought people eventually from all over the country to the South and exposed them to music coming out of the South. Outcast, right. The Dungeon Family, Goody Mob, T.I., these get known to the Atlanta club scene, but hardly outside of that. So you talked to a number of musicians who were there in those early years. How did they remember that part of it? You know, during that time period, there was like the East-West Coast type hip-hop thing, and the South, I think, was misrepresented, um, or underrepresented, rather. This event sort of in the early 90s, provided space for all of these guys to kind of come together. And uh, to speak to the organic nature of everything, is like kids from all over the country were coming down. So you could come from Memphis, you could come from Florida, you could you know be an Atlanta native. And you have this sort of organic space in which all these kids are going to hear things they hadn't heard before. And in turn, eventually they took that music back to, you know, Ohio State University or Seattle, Washington, or New York, for that matter. You know, it speaks to the nature of Freak picking in and of itself, to, to your point. It's just this really organic, shared experience. And it became a place for people to launch things and for music companies, record companies. BET started broadcasting live from Freaknik. Here's Luther Campbell's 1993 hit, Work It Out. And the beginning of the video alludes to Freaknik. Oh, sweetheart, let me take you to the wildest, freakiest. 
How did this change the image of Atlanta on the national scene and the national music scene? I mean, a lot of people still were looking at the South as bumpkins at that point. That's one of the reasons why I first was introduced to Organized Noise and Outcast and started like hearing about Luke and Three Six Mafia and things of that nature because I had not experienced that before. And I think really it's one of like a prime, one of the prime reasons why. You know, Atlanta is known for what it is today as it relates to music, because it just became this place where everything was coming out of. And the South had something to say. The South had something to say. So by the 90s, hundreds of thousands of people started coming to Atlanta. As I said, you know, music companies, television shows broadcasting from Freaknik. And many Atlanta residents started complaining about spontaneous parties just popping off in parking lots and neighborhoods and famously across highways. Uh, some cases, police were closing on and off ramps. You talked about that with the rapper and producer Too Short. Here's what he remembers. I remember Freaknik seeing this white lady in traffic. At, at times you would get stuck in traffic and it would be like whatever's going on up there they're not moving like you're gonna sit here for 45 minutes without moving one inch you're not moving and i remember that lady talking on the cell phone in her car and she had the most fearful look on her face like it was like if you threw her in the lions like like on a safari or something and she's no longer in the vehicle and i, I felt her too i'm like i get it she made a wrong turn and ended up in Freaknik. That episode was called The Abominable Indiscretions of Youth, and it goes on to talk about the city letting black people hold Freaknik, which was sprawling all over the city. This this kind of racialized nature of the response, something that came up in MTV's 1998 episode of Real Life. This is from Freaknik. When the average Joe Smith sat at home, when they see this, that's all they think. The Freaknik is bad, girls getting raped. And people doing drugs. That ain't it. You know what I mean? It's about black people coming together and uniting and just sharing love. If they decide to smoke weed, they want to smoke weed. They want to drink, they want to drink. You know what I mean? Ain't nothing but love. Ain't nothing but love. Every time all y'all want to do is show people getting arrested or have one incident with somebody getting in trouble. It ain't about that. So what we hear is white people scared, African-Americans. This is a triumph of expression. Is that too simple a breakdown? No, I mean, to be honest, one of the like one of the main reasons that we embarked on this process is just this story of I was talking to I live in Brooklyn, I was talking to this girl at a bar who was a white girl from Atlanta and I knew that she had like progressive parents and we just started chatting about what her parents experienced during that time and so I had this idea of like oh, I want to go interview a bunch of white people just to understand their sort of perceptions of Freaknik. So that, I mean, that's a very basic genesis of the project. And then also I was sort of inspired by, you know, the opening of, of Tom Wolfe's The Man in Full really describes that same thing from, from a middle-class black perspective. So those ideas, and so when Short says that, like that he gets it, it's like, I could understand that too. And I wanted to get a better understanding of that as part and parcel of this sort of larger look at the history of Freaknik in Atlanta. My guest is the documentary filmmaker Chris Frierson, creator and host of Freaknik, A Discourse on a Paradise Lost. They are three episodes now into an eight-episode run, if I got that right. Yes, ma'am. Well, So you are a filmmaker, a documentary filmmaker primarily. Why was a podcast the medium for telling this story? 
Yeah, I don't, I don't really know. It, it just, the opportunity sort of arose. Um, initially, I was thinking about a documentary project. And then I realized that I really love podcasts and I love the sort of in investigative journalism type approach. Um, and then a really simple answer is it's cheaper. Um, but I also was like, I kind of, I do want to make a film eventually. And I thought that this was, this would be a great way to, you know, get a piece of work out there and figure out, you know, if there is something to do in the future. Um, which is not to say that this is, I don't think this thing is dope. I just, I was thinking about it kind of both ways. One side of that is that the city response after attendees broke 100,000 in 1993, the number doubled in 1994, uh, crackdown, businesses and hotels started closing the door to participants, some lawsuits, hundreds of arrests, and maybe most damaging, MTV aired a video, a special on Freaknik showing women getting groped. Uh, in dancing circles, attacked in cars, and sometimes worse. And then in 2010, the former Atlanta mayor, Kasim Reed, said Freaknik activities no longer allowed in Atlanta. What did people that you spoke to say about that crackdown? I think collectively the impression that I got was this idea of Atlanta being a city that has always had a very careful, cultivated image that it wanted to broadcast to the nation and, and later the world as it as it grew. Um, and I think that Freaknik, you know, going back to the 50s from, you know, City Too Busy to Hate to, you know, just making sure that it, it, it saw itself as somewhere that was different than um, other places in the South. And I think that Freaknik is something that threatened that image. I think that those sort of pictures of, a, you know, to be very basic, of black people run amok in a major metro, you know, metropolis, you know, threaten that. I, one of the first things I ever saw, I remember when I was a kid, was there was a convention, and I think it was in 95. It was a computer convention. And so on paper, there couldn't be any two groups of people that were different. And I think that that became a problem. Like Short said earlier, it's like, I can see both sides of that thing. And that was also, of course, 95 is when, you know, the Olympics were set to come to Atlanta. It was the city going to be on a world stage. I, I want to pick up on your title of the podcast, The Discourse on a Paradise Lost. And if you pick up that illusion, you know, time before the fall, and importantly, before everybody had a camera or social media to spread these images. So for you, what, what was that paradise and what was lost? To me, that's one of the most beautiful things about Freaknik. It's like, I don't think it could ever happen again. I know they just did uh, like a music festival recently, but back then, no one had cameras. No one could share where their friends were at, you know, where you were at. No one could Instagram. People were not concerned about the sort of instant gratification that everybody is today. It was more about going someplace. You don't know what's going to happen, but you do know that you're probably going to meet somebody and have fun, meet new friends, and have wild stories that you can go back and embellish, you know, word of mouth. Just the idea of just going and getting good and lost for a while is, is tremendously interesting to me. Bun told me the story where he, he just got out in traffic, he hadn't been to Atlanta, and just walked to his hotel and had no idea where it was, had to call Pimps, his partner Pimpsey's mom to tell her where on the landline to be like, oh, we're at the hotel, this hotel. It's just this idea of 
it's a it's a kind of a freedom that we don't have anymore because we're all tethered to devices and, and everybody knowing what's going on at every time. Well, the Freaknik that reemerged this summer, you, in fact, you interviewed Luther, Uncle Luke Campbell, before the revival in June. This was at the Solaris Amphitheater in Lakewood. It was kind of billed as a family-friendly event. Should Freaknik and family-friendly exist in the same sentence? Naturally, not, not really. I mean, you don't think of, you know, MTV Spring Break, you know, associate that with family friendly. It's a, it's a different thing. It's a different animal. I, I, I think it's just using a title to, you know, to put more butts in the seat, so to speak. Yeah. So it's a brand now. Yeah. How did it go? Do you know? Is it, I mean, is it possible to replicate that past, that sprawling, you know, walk through the hotel and there's a party kind of feeling? I don't think you can't do that in, in an amphitheater, you know? I'm sure it was a great concert. They had a they had a a great lineup, but I don't think people were going back in '93 just to see Luke or music. They were going to just have an experience, and so an undefined experience. Whereas a concert, I believe, is a fairly defined experience. So, what's the legacy of Freaknik? This apocryphal paradise of freedom. I don't know. I think that's what we're trying to, to sort of explore. I, th- I think that the legacy is, you know, people will tell you it was a beautiful thing that ended up going bad. And I can see that. Um, I just think it was a moment in time that, like I said, can never be replicated and something really special for black people. You know, there's other celebrations, Black Bike Week, and there's been other things, but there's never been one that was as important, I think, to the country as this because of the musical stuff, because of, you know, its roots in the AUC and HBCUs. I think that this particular celebration was um, just unlike anything else. Well, Chris Farson, thank you so much for taking a break from making the podcast to speak with us. Thank you so much. And we will leave you with Playa Poncho's What's Up, What's Up, produced in the middle of Freaknik festivities in 1995, as we say goodbye to Chris Frierson, a documentary filmmaker and creator and host of Freaknik, a discourse on a paradise lost. Well, what about you? Did you live in Atlanta during Freaknik? Were you drawn here for Freaknik or were you scared away? Did Freaknik become racialized or was it in its very inception? You can let us know on our Facebook group. We're at GPB Radio's On Second Thought on Facebook or at Twitter at OST Talk. You can email us on secondthought at gpb.org or leave us a message at 404-500-9457. This is On Second Thought. Stay with us for a look at the economics of solar installations in Georgia when On Second Thought continues. And we're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. When the Public Service Commission wraps up its once-every-three-year energy plan later this month, it is expected to announce a massive increase in solar farms. But as far as residential solar goes, Georgia gets an F. GPB's Josephine Bennett explains why. Despite that failing grade from the nonprofit solar crowdsource, home installers here are swamped. That's because at the end of the year, the federal government will begin phasing out a 30% tax credit for residential solar. You know that rebate's going away this year. Yeah. So yeah. Well, that's why we're yeah. jumping. 
Eric Bias just spent $22,000 to put 24 solar panels on the roof of his home in Jones County. Today, he's holding an open house and showing those panels off to his neighbor, Jeff Fordham, who's also considering solar. I mean, I've known about solar for about six or seven years. Well, that's us. We've been checking in on it. Checking and in keeping on doing, it, et cetera, et cetera. And he's jumping so he doesn't miss out on that federal tax credit ending in 2022. And that's keeping people like Kyle Lewis with Installer Creative Solar working nonstop. This is going to be the busiest year to date in the U.S. for solar because of that tax credit phasing out. And in middle Georgia, people are also motivated by an additional 25% off thanks to Solarize Middle Georgia. It's one of many solar initiatives across the state through the nonprofit Solar Crowdsource. If enough people in your area sign up, you all get a discount. It's like a bulk purchasing program, and they bring several nonprofits in the area into it. Um, the city helps us out, you know, and we've done, this is Solarize Middle Georgia's our eighth campaign. But that campaign ends at the end of the month. Programs like this are necessary because right now, the state of Georgia offers no incentives for residential solar. Tim Eccles with the Georgia Public Service Commission says that's because their focus is on utility-scale projects for Georgia Power. Most of our solar growth is going to be in those large arrays in middle and south Georgia where we can essentially put solar on the grid below the cost of coal. Travel south of Macon, and you're likely to drive by one of these solar farms. They dot the landscape in many rural counties, and Eccles says those numbers will only increase. We will have arrays that may be 30 acres, 300 acres, 1,000 acres around our state. And these essentially produce enormous amounts of energy like a power plant. Of course, the PSC governs Georgia Power, but not electric membership cooperatives or EMCs. Eccles says rules for them are all over the place. He also says there's no plan to make any changes when it comes to net metering. That's when power companies pay those with solar a market rate for excess electricity they produce. Right now, Eric Bias gets three cents for every extra kilowatt from the utility. On average, that's nine cents less per kilowatt than what Georgia Power customers pay. And while Bias would like to see that change, he's still upbeat about solar because he's also concerned about the environment. If somebody says, you know, renewable energy is one way that everybody individually can pitch in and do something about, then that encouraged me also. And another plus? He says his savings will help pay for the panels long before they wear out 30 years from now. And that's a great return on investment. For GPB News, I'm Josephine Bennett in Macon. Walton Energy Membership Corporation is one of those EMCs which serves Northeast Georgia. Its approach to cooperative solar lowers costs for customers and is attracting some big industry players, too. Facebook chose Walton for a proposed 100% renewable energy data center in Newton County. Greg Brooks, Brooks joins us on the phone. He's Community and Public Relations Director for EMC. Greg Brooks, hello. Hey, good morning, Virginia. Glad right. to be here. Well, we're starting to see more and more houses decked out with solar panels across the state, but your company takes a different approach. You call it cooperative solar. So what does that mean? We do. 
it might surprise most people to know that only 25% of the residential rooftops in the United States are suitable for solar, and that is said by the National Renewable Energy Lab. That's because uh, you have renters whose landlords won't allow it. You have people living in apartment buildings. They have no roofs. You have people that have those beautiful Georgia oak trees shading their home, and they don't want to cut them. So only 25% really are suitable. That leaves the other 75%. So what our cooperative solar program seeks to do is to allow those people whose roofs are not suitable for solar to participate in solar energy production. So uh, we we uh, build and maintain solar facilities, and for only $25 a month, those people can participate in solar energy production. So you have, res- you have to connect houses, though, right, throughout communities to solar installations if they can't have them on their own house, correct? Well, the grid connects them. The All right. grid's already in place, and so they're connected through the grid, and the solar installations are connected to the grid as well. So how are you able to do that and keep costs for customers at $25 a month? What they do is they receive the solar output from a portion of the facility. And, of course, our program mimics exactly the uh, if they had panels on their roof. Mm -hmm. Because if it's cloudy, they might not make as much solar energy or receive a credit for as much that their portion produced. If it's a nice sunny month, then they'll receive a, um, a bigger credit. All right. So for context, how big are these communal solar installations that feed all of these individualized houses? Mm-hmm. We have about 6.5 megawatts total of, of community of cooperative solar right now. One megawatt occupies about six acres of land so you know that's around uh, 40 acres of panels and a megawatt uh, if you used it solely to supply the total needs of a home a megawatt would supply the total needs of about 150 homes so it's, it's a significant amount. I want to ask you about the power grid here. While other states across the country do have statewide standards for renewable energy, there's not really that mandate in Georgia. So what led Walton EMC, which is a was a traditional power company, or cooperative rather, to involvement with solar power? Well, Virginia, we're, we're owned by our customers. We were started because no one was interested in coming out to where they were to provide them with power. So those actual customers got together themselves and formed their own power company to do the job. So uh, our focus is member service or satisfying the needs and wants of our customers, and our customers were asking for it. Uh, They wanted to have a, uh, a chance to participate in solar energy, and we wanted them to be able to do that at a very affordable rate. Um, Typical cooperative or community solar programs traditionally had people that had people to actually buy part of the facility, and sometimes that part may have ranged up into the thousands of dollars, which would have prevented a lot of people from participating. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to keep it where everybody could participate. So you are not governed by the Public Service Commission, like, for example, Georgia Power? We are not, but actually we're governed by our own customers. Mm-hmm. And so they're they're going to keep a close watch on us and uh, 
they they come to our meeting and actually the people who uh, the board of directors for Walton EMC are actual customers who receive power from us. So we're governed by ourselves and by the people who actually pay the bills. Right. Well, you mentioned the credits. Many states, in many states, the power company or public service commission is obligated to buy back excess power generated by solar and other renewables. Does that happen in Georgia too? It does. It does. Uh, We have probably close to 100 now uh, individuals on our system who have their own solar panels on their homes and uh, any excess energy that they produce we do buy all right so the cooperative was founded on fossil fuels as i mentioned what percentage of walton emc's energy production is solar at this point it's still um one percent two percent but that's about to change you mentioned facebook earlier and when the resources come online to serve Facebook, that percentage is going to go up quite a bit. Um, and, Virginia, Virginia, one thing that's been fascinating to me, if you go back only 8 or 10 years ago, 60% of our energy was supplied by coal. Now that's probably 8 you know, eight percent. It's, it's taken a dramatic turn in just a short time. Mm-hmm. Greg Brooks is with us. He's community and public relations director for Walton EMC. That's a power cooperative. We're talking about solar power in Georgia. And as he mentioned, they have a big contract with Facebook, which is moving forward with plans to build a new data center in Dalton County, powered 100 percent with renewable energy, which is a huge project. How big will that installation be, Greg? It'll take um, 200 megawatts of solar that's actually under construction right now in South Georgia to supply that facility. And, uh, of course, you know, if we're talking about six acres for one megawatt, um, that's, you know, that's a lot. 1,200 <laughs> acres. Yeah, 1,200 <laughs> acres of, of solar panels to, to supply that, that facility. Why South Georgia for your installation? There's two reasons. Um, any, if you live up in, the, up in the, this part of the state, you know that land is not available in big tracks, mm-hmm. pretty much. If it was, um, it would be very cost prohibitive. Down in South Georgia, um, land is more available and it's more reasonably priced. And so that economics is one big reason why those facilities are being built there. And that's traditionally been farmland in many of those places. So is is solar farming the best use of land? I mean, we're giving up farmland for those panels? Well, uh, our partner, Silicon Ranch, who is building 100 of those 200 megawatts, has just introduced a program called Regenerative Energy. And I'm very excited about it. I'm an old farm boy, so uh, I like to see land used uh, to its to its utmost. They're actually partnering uh, with the farm at their facility, and the farm is going to graze uh, cattle and sheep and uh, other ruminant-type animals on their facilities. Right under the panels? That's right, right wow. under the panels. Um, I don't know... <laughs> I don't know about goats. You know, goats tend to eat a eat lot of everything. things. <laughs> but sheep and cattle should be should be safe. Well, do you have at, at Walton EMC? Do you have the people, the trained solar technicians, for installation on that huge scale? Well, we partnered with a company, Silicon Ranch, for part of it, and Strata Solar for another part of it. 
so you know actually we we are um we concentrate our employees concentrate here in our ten counties delivering power to our members, and then we find partners who are competent and uh up to date to actually put in those solar facilities and do that part of it for mm-hmm. us. There's been a lot of innovation in solar, but storage uh, is still a challenge. Will there be enough energy to power and cool, importantly, a data center if you know, it rains for a series of days? Mm-hmm. Yes, and uh, what will uh, happen is, uh, of course, at night, too. You know, solar panels can't produce at night. But uh, those facilities will produce enough energy during the day to offset all the energy required 24 hours a day. Okay. And so at night, um, power will will come from the grid for those facilities, but during the day, there'll be enough solar power produced to account for what they'll use from traditional sources. Are there any other renewable energy be, energy sources being used for that Facebook Center? You know, they have made it clear that they want to be 100% renewable. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's just solar. Mm-hmm. Um, it, uh, unfortunately, in Georgia, we don't have enough wind for windmills. Yeah. Uh, we've been part of a consortium that has actually done studies on that. And uh, even at the seacoast, where we do have breezes, but you have to have sustained winds of at least five miles an hour. Unfortunately, there's nowhere in Georgia that we can do, we have enough wind to do that. So wind is really not an option for us. Um, we have... Uh, a little bit of landfill gas where um, they put piping systems into landfills and capture the methane from the decaying trash, clean that up and use it to run generators, but uh, that's really a very small amount. We don't have that many landfills to, to take advantage of there. So solar seems to be the most viable option for us here. Greg, we just heard about the tax credits running out on solar, so there's a big push to get solar installations built before that happens. In your experience, however, you're in the business, right? Uh, is the solar power boom in Georgia, is that motivated by economics or by environmental concerns? I, I think it's both. I think it's both. Um, our, our cooperative solar program, when we roll that out, I started getting emails from people, even even some of our customers who didn't participate in it, and they said, you know, I'm really proud of what, what you're doing. I'm proud that you're taking the steps to to be a participant in renewable energy. So I think the environmental aspect is, is a big part of it. And it's amazing, Virginia, how the price of solar panels uh, has dropped in just a very, very short time. You know, 10 years ago, I, I would have not expected this because the panels were just too expensive. But now, and especially now that we have our, our, a plant here in Georgia manufacturing panels, we've, we've cut out a lot of transportation costs and shipping overseas. So, uh, you know, economics is, is coming into play as well. All right. And will your cooperative customers profit potentially from Facebook's big investment? Well, since we're a cooperative, we don't make a profit. Um, anything in excess of what it costs us to operate is actually returned to the members in proportion to the amount of business they did with us. 
Now, yeah, of course, it will benefit us because, uh, you know, any big, large energy purchase will, will help the price of energy for everybody. But uh, Facebook will actually receive capital credits from us, too. Uh, anything that it costs Anything extra or above what it costs us to serve them, you know, they'll eventually get back. Greg Brooks, I want to thank you for your time. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Greg Brooks, he's Community and Public Relations Director for Walton EMC, building a solar installation for Facebook's new data facility. Well, yesterday we heard about a string of rare cancers in Waycross, Georgia, and why residents think pollution is at the root of the problem. On Facebook, Todd Cormack wrote, We were looking to move there, but I've decided not to because of this. Ooh, ouch. <laughs> well, On Second Thought is produced by LaRaven Taylor, Amelia Brock, and Jake Troyer. We're so glad you could join us. Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer. Our senior producer is Amy Kiley and Sarah Shariari, managing editor for GPB News. Have a great weekend.